What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Presented by Consequence Podcast Network and SoundMind Live, today we are talking with Xavier Amen de Frepales, otherwise known as the Grammy Award-winning blues artist, Fantastic Negrito. His new single, Root City, is out now. Check it out at fantasticnegrito.com. And his most recent Grammy was for the 2020 album, Have You Lost Your Mind Yet? In their review of that album, American songwriter said, his vision of blues is as eclectic and all-encompassing as Prince's was to soul. And they went on to say that his fresh approach is entirely unpredictable and that he's fearless. Well, Xavier is showing his fearlessness in another way by talking about a very difficult topic, narcissism. Now, on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And right now, narcissism is perhaps the most maligned and stigmatized mental health condition that someone can suffer from. Narcissism is a process by which an individual carries with them a profound sense of shame, self-loathing, and emptiness. And in order to manage those difficult feelings, people who struggle with narcissism will engage in a variety of protective mechanisms. For example, people who struggle with narcissism tend to indulge in grandiose thoughts, where they may imagine themselves having unlimited power or being beloved by the world. Someone who struggles with narcissism may also have a very difficult time receiving any type of negative feedback and may either dismiss the feedback or react harshly with anger if they feel threatened. These protective mechanisms are designed to prevent an individual who struggles with narcissism from feeling that shame and self-loathing. But unfortunately, it often backfires and alienates rather than connects the person with others. And in our conversation, Xavier talks about how he has struggled with narcissism and how he is working to manage it. So let's go there and listen to what Xavier has to say. Xavier, welcome to Going There. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Now, let's just get right into it. You have talked about a very interesting concept, which is the, which is the idea of being a recovering narcissist. And narcissism is something that a lot of people are very interested in. They're interested in whether they struggle with it, whether 
there's someone that they're in a relationship who may struggle with it. And I just want to start off by saying, when you say recovering narcissist, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so, you know, I do refer to myself as a recovering narcissist. Um, it's my way to, uh, you know, make the space a lot easier for people. I, I really discovered it, you know, after I woke up from a three-week coma. I remember I was in a coma three weeks. I'd broken everything. My, you know, my life seems like it was in peril and disarray. I was laying there, and when you're recovering from such a major accident, I, I had a lot of time to think, and I, I remember just thinking about everything that had went down. And, you know, I'd signed this big record deal for a million bucks and Jimmy Iovine and all these, these big players. And then I thought, you know what? I think it's me. I think I'm, I'm the person, and I had time to really uh, do some self-reflection about why I may have been a recovered narcissist or a narcissist at the time. And I think for me, I grew up in a family of uh, 14 siblings, same mother, same father. I was the eighth. And, um, you know, I'd never got any attention, man. I never got that, um, that, that bond that you get with your parents. I, my mother was a very, very attractive woman. She was 33 years younger than my dad. And, um, (laughs) That's why there's 14 kids. Uh, um, so I, I, so I had a whole thing with you know connecting with beautiful women. The, go, go down the list, but I think being the uh, look again, I want to make myself the hero. Being the exceptional person that I am, I, I, I was like, okay, it's me. I'm the person. You know, my parents were were very religious, and they were like, God, 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 God. And I'm like, God. If there's a God, I think He's talking to me. And not the rest of you. I mean, I, I literally did that to survive. And I ended up running away at 12 years old. That's how, and never seeing my dad again. He passed away. I ended up in um, foster care, uh, group homes. And I think my survival mechanism was I was the most important person in the world. And that everything re- revolved around myself. So that's, I think, where it, I think it, it, it came that way, you know, with me, that's how I worked it out. But I'm sure that I inherited it from my dad, who was born in 1905. And why did, why was he an, a narcissist? Oh man, you want to, you want to, you want to get into that? Well, listen. I, I do indeed. Well, you gotta, you gotta look at it. This guy's intelligent progressive, forward thinking, but he's got a problem. He's born in 1905 and he's black. So you got a problem when you're, when, when, when you're, when you're all those things in 1905. So my dad did something I just found out six months ago. And I guess this, this is an exclusive on this, on this program is that he invented a name, his my last name. I found out through going through records that he made it up. He created this whole persona of um, being from another country with this whole name, being someone else in order to face the construct of institutionalized racism, white supremacy. I'll check all the boxes in 1905. And so I think that's where his, it was a defense mechanism. I don't want to be in awe of my dad. He was also a pretty abusive person, but also a brilliant person. It's like, ah, 
this this struggle. But I, I may have gotten that from from him too. Like, how do you survive in this, you know, traumatized in this insane world without becoming a victim? Because a kid that leaves home at 12, I mean, he's usually gonna become somebody's victim. I mean, I I face drugs, selling drugs, drug addiction. Um, you face pedophiles, molesters, man, you face everything. And I think I told myself that no one was more important than I was, that everything revolved around me as a survival mechanism, as a tool. But as good as that was, it became destructive <laughs> later in my life and it became very, very negative. And I think when I woke up from that coma, that accident, I started reflecting on, you know, why I was bitter, why I was blamed everybody for everything and why it's me against them always. And I thought, that's my bullshit. And when you're in recovering, it took me a year to recover. I had time to say out loud that who's the asshole in the room? Who's the most damaged person in the room? Me. (laughs) Hey, hey, I think that'd be me again. So it was the most self-reflective, healing, therapeutic moment that I had in my life when I said it out loud. And then I, like my, all my other musician friends, I'm recovering from drugs. I'm recovering from alcohol. I'm, I'm recovering from narcissism. And I work out in every day. And I guess I'm such a narcissist that I have my own 12-step program. I don't know. Uh, you know, I've never, like, <laughs> I've never sought any type of, help for it being, you know, I'm, I probably haven't um, evolved that far, gotten that far in my recovery where I could do that. If I go to a therapist, I'm trying to manipulate them, you know, and so it doesn't work for me. You know, one of the things that people I think fundamentally misunderstand about narcissism is that they assume that people who are narcissistic think they're amazing. And the, the, you know, the core of narcissism is there's an emptiness, there's a shame. Yes. And yes, it's, I think that one of the things that is very difficult for people, especially when they see what you're describing, and I agree is the defense mechanism to empathize with that person around that shame, because they're coming at you with so many things that are different with, like you said, grandiosity and anger and, and manipulation that it's very hard. Self-importance. Yeah. Self-importance. And it's hard to feel that empathy for someone who struggles with narcissism. But do you think you could take a little bit of time and just explain to someone beneath the defenses, what is that feeling at the core? You know, you're talking about not getting as much attention and, and just what it feels like to have that emptiness, that shame that you're just kind of carrying around. You don't know what to do with. Well, you know, my, 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 it, it, I think, you know, Hey, it all comes from our parents. So I'm going to be saying my parents a lot, my parents, like most parents, they meant well, but they, you know, they were out of their damn minds. You know, you can't, you know, try to pull off what they did unless you're going to start a cult. I'm just like, Hey man, just start the cult. I can probably roll with that, you know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, my dad was born at the time he was born, you know, think, let's go back to him. Think about how damaged he was inside, how society was telling him you're nothing. It's different. If you weren't, my dad was this brilliant mind. 
if we talk about him, he'll be like, whoa, the things he accomplished in his life. At that time, that's a handicap for a brother. And so we're dealing, so he didn't want to, that hurt him. When he kept telling him he wasn't a man, that, that hurt him, man. That killed him inside. When you tell him that he can't do what other people could do when he was just as good at him, it killed him inside. So he, I always say something my grandmother said, obstacles become fuel. Your obstacles, it's, it, it became his fuel. He being, you know, 14 kids, you know, we're never on welfare. We're never on any government assistance. That was his fuel, his narcissism, his pride in a way. That was the good side of it. And I, I never thought about it until I was older, man. We never had food stamps. He never, and he had his own business. You know, we, we were the employees, <laughs> uh, underpaid and underfed, but the thing, the thing about that is that it, it, it became that because of the emptiness, because of the bleak island. You have to imagine being born at that point in the United States and like, what would you have done if somebody shut all the doors? Somebody told you, hey, man, you suck. You're not good enough. Hey, 40 years ago, I could have sold your ass. So he dealt with that. My thing was, you know, and it made him very religious. He was a devout, he, he um, converted to Islam, changed his name, met my mother when she was a kid, converted her, you know, pissed off my mother's family were these Southern Baptists. And um, yeah, that's quite a bit of stories my grandmother tells me about that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I felt like an outsider. I felt like I wasn't good enough. I felt like um, I didn't matter. Felt like everyone was better than me. Um, I felt all those things, you know, being a freak, we're born, I was born in New England in the late sixties. And man, you were like, what? 14 kids. And you're, you guys are Muslims and you, you can't come to the Christmas party and you don't celebrate Easter. You become, it sounds like nothing now, but back then it killed me, man. It killed me to have to, uh, Go to school and sit in the classroom. Everybody, what did you get for Christmas, Johnny? And everybody, what did you get for? And man, they came to me and it was like, we suck. We don't have Christmas. You know, people, you don't have Christmas? Like, you know, maybe I was weak. I, I, I don't know. But that killed me. Well, what you're talking about, and, you know, you're really talking about generational trauma to some extent, is... There, you know, there's so many different levels when it comes to something like racism. But one of the things that's more subtle is just not feeling seen, not having that constant, like you're talking about, that almost that attention where, listen, I just want the basics, like I'm here, I'm a yeah. human being. And if I do something, I just want to know that it's recognized as something. And, and yeah. the things that if you get those, it's easier to combat narcissism to an extent, especially when you're younger. But if you don't get those, it's so hard to then understand a world in which you might get that. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to get these things. I got to do something. I got to not only right. mean, I got to be super seen. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm hurting and I need this. This is my medicine. That's what it was for me, man. I'm hurting, man. You know, this is, uh, this is heavy, man. I'm carrying all this baggage. Like, you know, I remember, um, you know, leaving home at 12, it was a big decision. And you see other kids, mothers, picking them up to school and telling them, you have to be home at this time. And 
I slept in cars, abandoned cars. I no one cared what time I came home. That that's damage, man. That's pain. You know, I'm not part of it. I'm not. I'm not part of your thing. No one. I don't feel loved. I don't. I don't. I don't feel accepted. I don't feel nurtured. I don't feel cared for. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna make life miserable for everybody. You know, and one of the things that's I think very difficult also to see when someone struggles with narcissism is that, look, you're just just trying to figure out a way to get by. And and in theory, it makes sense if you feel badly. Well, make yourself feel extra good. Make yourself feel grandiose. Make your feel right. make yourself feel really good because that's what's going to compensate. And, right. and and it makes sense in theory. And I guess the question I would have for you is where does it fall? Where does it not work? Because in, in theory, it should make sense that that would work. Doesn't work at all, man. That's, um, you know, what works is the truth. The truth works. What, what works is inclusion. What works is openness. What works is, uh, is, is vulnerability. What's, you know, that, that works. What works is love. Those things work. Um, you know, when you're saying and claiming all these things and it's just, you're trying to fill up a hole. And guess what? It's the kind of hole that will never fill up, ever. And you're trying to fill it up. You can fill it up with drugs. You can fill it up with attitudes. You can fill it up with abuse. You can fill it up with aggression. I learned that being in a coma three weeks. You know, it ain't. You're trying to fill, trying to fill the hole up. You know, wrote this this song that says that it won't until you can embrace honesty. I mean, old people are geniuses. They are our treasures, man. I mean, the truth will set you free. I mean. That's as old as dirt, but man, it's, it's, it's real. It was, it liberates you. It's so interesting because, you know, I've been working with people for years and, you know, narcissism is something that I deal with, with the people, you know, with whom I'm working. And this thing that you're saying makes so much sense. And I never thought of it that way because what's missing at the beginning is truth. It's like, I am here. Yes. I, 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 you, you can see me. I am doing things. And the fact that you're denying me all these things, that's not the truth. But then you swing into this, well, I'm, I'm better than everybody else. I'm the greatest thing. I, I never make any mistakes. And right. right. That's also not the truth. So all you're doing is it's shifting. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're just shifting. You're just shifting the lie. Around it's 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 a little bit I guess it's it's a different kind of lie but it's the it's the same thing that that makes a that, lot of sense to me. You know that's so interesting. I was reading or oh, was I listening to something had to do with one of my favorite um, people in the world in the history of the world who's Muhammad Ali. I love reading anything on him. I like listening to. He's just a fascinating person. And on the program, someone was talking about your exact point the nation of islam and all that was was hey you told these people they didn't matter they were nothing you're gonna come and get knock on their door and hang them from a tree all the above and so what they did is they took nation of islam and say hey man you don't accept me well then guess what i'm better than you that didn't help but it's 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 an example of a defense mechanism that was used in the 60s. And uh, 
you know, people ran with it. It, it, it helped some people, but in the end, I don't think you can build anything that really lasts with that kind of philosophy. And I think uh, everyone came around. Malcolm X, he came around. They, they assassinated him. Muhammad Ali, of course, you know, came around to be, become a, a world leader and loved by, by so many people. But yeah, I think, now, I think when I look at it today, I think... <laughs> And I don't mean to be a bully or pick on social media, but I don't think social media is really helping us, you know, where everybody has a platform. Hey, and it doesn't matter if you, you haven't read anything, you haven't researched anything. So you have a platform like, you know, like, I mean, what it takes to get a platform now is insane. You don't have to be well read. You don't have to particularly know anything. You just have to be sensational. And I think that uh, that draws parallels with the end of Rome, <laughs> you know, but I think it's a whole different type of uh, that's what narcissism. I call it the era of narcissism, the whole reality uh, TV phenomenon. I think like we elected a guy president where you love, love him or hate him. I, I, I don't care about that, but I'm saying we definitely, you know, we love Kim Kardashian. I remember my my son was like, what? Why do we? Why do people love Kim Kardashian? He's a he's eleven. I was like, that's a good question. I don't think we don't our standards. You know, we love people who haven't done anything, I, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody. You know, look at um, but we have become idioc idiocracy. The movie. It's an old movie, idiocracy. Check it out. Oh my God, I think we've become that. Like, it's like, you know, we elect these characters of comedy. And it's, it's, it's insane. Well, you know, it's interesting that you're describing that, that, that concept of a caricature, right? And it's like you, you, when you're in that, the throes of the narcissism, right? You're, you're, you're creating almost this character of yourself, you know? And, Again, you know, if it's if you know that you're doing it and you're doing it almost purely for entertainment, there, there's something that actually I think can be, uh, you know, can be enjoyable about that if you're in control. Absolutely, you know, I agree with you a hundred percent. But so the so I, I want to go because you you've referenced the coma and you referenced the, the the steps that you take. What about the coma shook you from that zone? Well, it's uh, it's probably one of the biggest moments of my life, which I I realized this even later after the coma, years later. I, the coma for me was basically waking up and saying, damn, you know what? I can't do this alone. Like, I can't, this thing, you know, this life thing, you know, whatever I wanted to be, whether it's a musician or, or just a, a man. You know, remember men? You know? Um, <laughs> I had to throw that in. <laughs> so that's a, so, I think that's a, that's an entirely different podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, I figured out that you know what? So the first time it was like I can't do this alone. I thought I did everything with me. I did it. Me, me, me. I survived. They put me in foster care. I survived. Amen. I fought off men that tried to rape me. And I'm telling you the truth, men, as a 
14 year old boy. So, you know, it, it, it was always like me, me, me. And that's what makes, you know, a narcissist is those situations where you don't want to make yourself the victim. And again, if I'm listening to myself, I'm making myself the hero, which is a horrible trait and it's part of narcissism. But because it has something to do with survival again, I'm fucked up. But I want to tell you that I'm great because I, 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 I you know, I did, I survived. And I want to tell you, hey, man, I survived all these things that usually take other people. They get on drugs and they go to prison, but not me, motherfucker. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but you know what I mean? It's it's a fire. Yeah, no, fire. See, but but see, I'll, I, I disagree with you a little bit on that, because actually for, for me, and this is one of the things when I work with people, I say the, the key, one of the keys to recovering from narcissism is to is to give yourself credit when you do something. That's important. Like I, I don't. I don't think recovering from narcissism means that you can't do anything that's important, or you can't give yourself credit, or maybe even uh, you know a little bit of enhancement in terms of of what. Not saying that that's what what you're doing, but it's like you know. So what if you did something good and and you think it's great? I mean, I think I think fighting off someone who's assaulting you is an amazing thing, especially at that age. And so I'm 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 you know I'm sorry you even had to be in that situation. But I, I personally think you, you do deserve credit and should feel, I mean, not should, because that's a, you don't want to do a should statement, but, but I, I, I think that it would be okay to feel good about yourself for that. And so I guess the question is, if you're recovering from narcissism, from your perspective, how do you give yourself credit? Because I, I to me, that's, the, that's one of the pathways to recovery. Yeah, maybe, you know, I think what I'm doing is I police myself all the time. So I'm very careful, like, not, not to, I know when I, you know, talk to, you know, not make myself the hero. So maybe it's, I over, see, maybe that's the point where I do need help. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just police myself to make sure I'm not, you know, falling into that, that um, cycle. So the, the thing I give myself credit for is, that I acknowledge I'm a recovering narcissist. I feel like, man, I may be the first person who said that out loud. I think that I have it on my Twitter feed. I'm a recovering narcissist. There, I beat you. See, I recover better than you. You recover, but I recover times 10. You know, it's like, I, I play that that game. And um, so it's careful. And, I, and thank you for um, making me feel like I should get credit for that because I do feel like I should. I do feel happy about surviving. And I feel like because I did, I'm now useful. It's the whole story of Fantastic Negrito. I mean, when I moved back home from LA, man, I think it was 2007, I basically quit music. I quit everything, sold all my gear. I was done. I was, I couldn't play the game of, you gotta look this way, you gotta sound like this. You got to be young. You got to be, you know, you got to be hip. You got to be cool. You got to be the latest. I'm like, I can't, I'm dying here, man. You know, music was something that I love. So I'm, I quit. I sold everything. And I didn't really start thinking about playing music again until five years after that, which led to Fantastic Negrito. And Fantastic Negrito was about, hey, man, the guy before, he wanted a lot of stuff. He wanted the best girls. Wanted to live in the biggest house, overlooking your house. Wanted to have the flyest cars, best clothes, 
drugs, whatever stuff people want. I want to be numero uno. Want, 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 want. I, I, I call it the want more whore. I was a want more whore. Um, but the liberation, the freedom of um, embracing this Negrito guy was that. And he is a guy. I like when you said we can, they're characters, because they, he is a character. I'm not, now I'm done with this. I go home, you know, I live on a farm. I'm not fantastic Negrito anymore. People see me, aren't you fantastic Negrito? Sometimes I'm like, I could be with my kids. I'm like, not now I'm not. I said, when I'm on stage, I am. Now I'm just somebody's dad. So the difference between that guy and the other guy was that Fantastic Negrito didn't want anything. And that was liberating, man. He didn't want anything, man. Think about that. I don't want anything. I don't want your fame. I don't want you to tell me how I should sound. I don't want your... um. You know, you, you tried to, your affirmation, none of that. So that's why I went and played on the streets. I didn't know it was going to happen, but I thought, hey, I, I've been through a lot. I can be of service to people. I can play music. If I go to the train station and I'm contributing and I'm giving up something, that makes me feel better, actually, to know that I, because I think human beings in the end, we just want to know that, hey, and you said it earlier, like, hey, man, I have value here. Don't you see me? Like, I, I fucking matter here. It's so big when you say that. I'm like, yeah, it's right. Yeah, it's, it, you know, and the more as you're talking, it's like what I'm hearing is that that truth concept, you know, because what there, there's there's so many different ways of interpreting things. There's so many different ways that people can get in their own heads. But that that simple act of. I'm here to do something good for you. And I'm, you know, I'm willing to love and I'm willing to be loved. You know, I'm willing to help and I'm willing to be helped. That, that is, to me, that gets us close to the truth. Whatever, whatever truth is. Yes. I think we're wired to be able to connect to each other in that way. And when, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, for any mental health issue. And, and I think narcissism is like that idea of going out and helping people connecting with people uh, is so so powerful because there's, there's a truth there that feels undeniable. Yeah. And what you're really doing, man, I I have my, I break it down to something really simple coming from Oakland, California. I'm like, Hey man, Hey y'all, all all those kids you're scared of. (laughs) All you got to do is say hi to them. You know, go to those areas that you pack, you speed through every day and get to know just one person there. The schools that we don't send our kids to. I'm not saying send your kids to them. I'm saying get to know someone there. Just one person. You don't have to have signs and march down the street all the time and be like, look at, look what I'm doing. Um, just getting to know a person, talking to them, to them that's completely different from you, that you would never, you know, cross paths with. Man, that's what you're saying, like helping. And you're, you're asking for help also because you're like, hey, man, I need to get involved in this human thing. Because, you know, I may be sitting in my tower somewhere, but I don't feel that good inside. Hence, so many drugs in Hollywood. Why? Why would there be? Think about it. Hmm. You know, you, you're living in a, in a situation where you got everything you want. All your dreams came true. Sold a million records. Hit movies. And why do we need drugs? There's a reason. <laughs> there's an emptiness. You know, there's something that we're not talking about. 
Now, I'm kind of curious on that point for you because as an artist, one of the things that unfortunately, I say this unfortunately because it can be a difficult interaction sometimes, is that unfortunately, we love our artists in part because they go to places that we do not or cannot. They go to, they go to extremes. They explore issues that are, are, are scary for us. Yes. And in some ways, that can be a wonderful thing for something like narcissism because you can get it all out there. But it can also drag you in where you feel like, well, it's that, that razor's edge where it's like, am I in control of it or is it in control of me? You know, who's, who's driving the car here? Well, that's where this, the separation is so important, man, of knowing that it is art. And it's not just all of you. Like, I'm not, like, a, what I say is I'm not Fantastic Negrito all the time. I'm him sometimes. It's like a superhero. You put on the cape and, hey, I'm here. Da, 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 da. Look at my shirt, you know, <laughs> you know. And, and you become that dude, but you got to take it off. And you got to go fishing with your buddy. <laughs> and you got to go have a beer with the homies. You know, you got to take that off or it controls you. And wow, yeah, it's interesting. Like even Fantastic Negrito, I remember the day when I came up with that name. I was, because I at that time I was like, you know, experimenting it was about 20 14, I'm experimenting, coming up with concepts, and, you know, starting to play on the streets really, I think it was 2013 is when I started that, playing on the streets and like, oh man, I'm feeling this thing, life, finally something that I can connect to as a middle-aged guy, and I don't have to apologize for being a middle-aged guy, and yeah, you know, I'm not cool, motherfucker, no, I play at front of the donut shop, I'll see you there, you know, no, I don't, no, I, I don't need a, a genre. No. I'll, and I remember, um, you know, people are like, oh, you're crazy. There's no way, you know, all the things that they talk about how you can't get things done. I don't talk about how I can't get things done. I talk about how I can get things done. So I remember um, I had this art gallery and I'm just being like this esoteric artist, man, living in Oakland. But no, I don't have a name yet. I'm in this room with these young kind of techie intern people whom some of them are still my friends to this day. And I had the epiphany came to me as I'm staring out the window in Jack London Square in Oakland, looking at the Oakland Tribune Tower. And I think I'm fantastic, Negrito. That the moment it hits me, if I make a movie, that's what it's going to be. And I get up and I run into the other room. Hey, guys, these three young hip people. I'm like, oh, I'm so cool. Finally. Finally. Hey, guys, listen, I got a name. What? Tell me you got a name for yourself as an artist. Fantastic Negrito. And I, I promise you, the three of them all let out a chorus of boos. Boo! We hate that name. I was shocked. Like, what? And I remember this one intern, um, young white kid named Jack. Hi, Jack, if you're out there. Do my best white and pretty. He goes, Xavier? He said, I... It, I study marketing and Fantastic Negrito is a horrible name. Why, Jack? He said, well, white, white people, we don't like saying the word Negrito. It makes us uncomfortable. And then I thought like, man, you know, I grew up around Latinos. Like I heard that all the time. I thought, and I thought white people uncomfortable. I could, that, that could be actually cool. 
<laughs> and I, I remember my logo that I had, the little guy, I don't know if you've ever seen him, one of the interns said, ha, 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 do you mean like this? On her lunch bag, and she drew the logo. And my mind was blown, man. All this synthesis and this chemistry and this thing happened. I'm like, I will buy that from you right now for 300 bucks. And she looked at me and said, I'm a real artist. Uh, sure, I'll take the money. Just don't tell anybody I made it. And that really happened. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I think you've talked about, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, like sort of the, the merging of hip hop and punk rock, you know? And, yeah. And that punk rock to me is, a, is all about confrontation. If you're not, if people are not uncomfortable in the audience, it's not punk rock. Exactly. That's exactly. It it could be great. It's there's nothing wrong with it. Right. You got to be sitting there being like, "Uh, I don't know, you know, in order for it to be. And that's what you're talking about with the name right away. It's, it's a confrontation. Well, I always say this thing. I go, Hey man, (laughs) ain't nobody that's more punk rock than sister Rosetta. uh, What's the name? Rosetta Thorpe. Thorpe. Yeah. Nobody was more punk rock than, you know, Robert Johnson. I mean, I feel like these are the first punk rockers. I mean, at that time, getting out there, that art form, that swag, that's nothing was more punk rock than that. Then Little Richard, here's a dude, a black man in the 50s that goes, you know what? I think to deflect all these people, I'm going to androgyny. That'll show them. I mean, whoa, what are you thinking? Here? So I think there is this, juxtaposition between any art form that is pushing, that's asking questions, that's edgy. And I, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm 53. I grew up in the beginning of hip hop. And I remember when that was like, what the, what is that? Well, you know, we just went uh, to MC Shawrock Day in the Bronx a couple of weeks ago. You know, someone who I admire, the first, mother of the mic, first female MC. And, and I, I was, I was sitting there just kind of imagining what it must take for someone to say, we don't have any instruments. <laughs> we, we're, we're, not, we're not classically trained. Everybody around right. us are all people. They're singing, they're playing instruments. And, and we're just going to go down there and do something that's completely different just because oh, that's yeah. who we are. I mean, talk about being seen. You Man. know, talking about the power of that. Oh, brother. You know? And you know what? I love that. And I, I, I thought you, I was like, man, this guy's going to steal my, my thunder here. But um, <laughs> I always say to myself, and I, at this, that's a great addition that I can now steal from you to add to my story. I say this, think about the day when a person was like, yeah, let me see. I got one turntable. Let me see. What if I get two turntables? Gee, okay, two turntables. I mean, think about that day. I got two. I'm gonna isolate the best part of it and a microphone. We can, we can, we can, we can talk over it. That shit is like discovering the wheel. Yeah, it's and and you know, as as example, just to to you know put on that, you know, like at this event, like Grand Wizard Theodore was there who invented scratching, at least as far as I know. It's like, right. you're going to do what? Like everybody in the world, the worst thing you could do is scratch a record. You know what right. I'm going to do? I'm going to scratch a record to make music. And, and, and you think about all of these people. And, and you know, again, it's the, the, the concept of truth, the concept of being seen. It's like, if you're not going to see me, if you're not going to listen to my truth, 
You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I'm seen and you're going to hear my truth. And, and now look at it. It's, it's just like everything, you know, all these people that you're talking about have all still have influence on the, the cultural landscape today. And it's become Absolutely. a vehicle for people to be seen. And that's why, that's why people, you know, talk about music saving. It's because sometimes when you listen for the first time to somebody, you're like, this person, I don't know this person. I've never met this person. I wasn't here when they were making this music. This right. person sees me. This person exactly. understands me. No, man, 1,000% you, you, on that. And, um, you know, I, I, I talk about my grandmother a lot. She probably the one person that I felt loved by. I come from um, Virginia people, man. I am a Virginian, brother. Let me tell you. I, I've traced myself so far back to Virginia to where I'm white. You know, to my 15th century people, all that. Yeah, so I've got, and that's on the, coming on the next record. I, I found out my, um, my seventh grandmother, who was a white Scottish woman, had kids with a, a slave. <laughs> Big scandal. Big court case, true story. I wrote a whole album about it that's coming soon. All right, skip that. But what I want to talk about <laughs> grandmother, talk about grandmother's grandmother. I remember she was like, you know, your great grandmother, Ella Wheeler Brown, all Virginia people, you know, she used to play Negro spirituals. We call them Negro spirituals. Well, she's doing this talk and she's talking about in blues and country. They called it country music. Um, she said, you know, white people thought we were sad. Honey, we weren't sad. I remember that. I was like, huh. Weren't sad. She never explained it beyond that. And I was too young to ask the question, but she gave me so many things to think about for the rest of my life. And I thought, oh, we were surviving. Oh, we were clapping our hands. We were dancing. Oh, man, we were trying to get through it, man. You know, Black folks, I mean, we turned into music and shout and dance. Innovation, jazz, funk, rock, punk, hip hop, blues, punk, rock, soul, alligator shoes, foot stops, hand claps, hammer beat threes, and mini moves. Come on, you know it's, I mean, it has, yeah, and it's and that's and you know and these are examples of hey, there there is a path, especially if if you're feeling you know like for people who feel narcissism, they feel like there's. There's no path to feeling good other than the grandiosity, other than the manipulation. And it's like, what are you talking about here? You're talking about ways that people have found out how to feel good, how to take that emptiness, how to take that shame and do something that makes you feel good and the people around you feel good, which, and that's really powerful. When you can do that. That's powerful. It's, um, it's, um, I, I have it on my cup. I put it on a record. Take that bullshit, turn it into good shit. <laughs> you know, that's my mantra, man. That that that's got to be that that's got to be the closing idea. It's got to be right <laughs> yeah. there. That's my mantra. That's my that's my obstacles are fuel. Exactly. Listen, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me. These these are tough issues, and I I definitely I feel like I took something. Definitely a truth concept. And there's a lot of things I took away, but that is going to stick with me for a long time. I appreciate you uh, taking the time and sharing your story. It's, you know, it's 
it matters to me. It matters, uh, hopefully, the people who are listening. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, man. Be safe out there, and um, I'll see you when I see you. So there it is. Xavier, otherwise known as Fantastic Negrito, talking about how he understands and manages narcissism. There's so much to take away from the conversation with Xavier. One important point is that he emphasized that he considered himself a recovering narcissist. And that's such an important concept for anyone struggling with mental health issues. The work of our recovery is ongoing, and we always need to be careful to continue to engage in healthy thoughts and behaviors as we go on in our mental health journey. And I can't emphasize enough how powerful and important it is that he's taking the time to share his experience and struggle with narcissism. Everywhere you look in the press, people are talking about how harmful and toxic narcissism can be. And while it's important to share those experiences, it's also critical that we remember that people who struggle with narcissism or any mental health issue deserve to be treated with dignity and get the care they need. And Xavier's sharing his story so openly will help people who struggle with narcissism feel less stigmatized and hopefully more willing to step forward and get treatment. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you think that you struggle with narcissism or other mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. And if you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads. Consequence Podcast Network.